you have your scriptures with you, open them to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue looking at this passage. Uh, unfortunately, I was, uh, couldn't conclude it last week. It was just a little bit too much to cover, but uh, I do intend to, f- to finish it this morning. So, Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't have your Bible, there's an insert in your bulletin that has the passage there. And I'll begin uh, reading it at uh, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. We've been talking about the transforming power of the gospel. As we go, hopefully all of you will go with us today. We're going to go out and see our our building uh, before they start uh, the renovation. And I hope that all of you will uh, consider driving out there, taking a few minutes, looking at the building, and asking any questions. But the, the purpose of us uh, going to this great expense and working so hard to plant a church here in El Paso uh, is not just to uh, gather a little group of people together and cobble together some money and you know have a good time, make friends and whatever. But it's to extend the kingdom of God into our part of the world, whatever part of the world God has given us, we want to extend His kingdom into that part of the world. And so we have a vision, we have a mission that we're 
uh, going to achieve, hopefully, over the next few years. We've been working on it for uh, 15 years now, and we're going to continue as long as God allows us to do that. And I told you last week that we have a purpose statement, a vision statement, a mission statement. We have core values. We've talked about these in our church in times past, and we have them on our website and in our literature. But I felt it would be appropriate for us to take some time and look at each one of these so that you can kind of reorient your heart, your mind around them, and uh, get ready to go into this new phase of life for Christ the King. The purpose statement for our church, why we exist, why do we exist, is our heart's passion and greatest joy is to exalt the glorious majesty of Jesus Christ our King by enjoying Him now and throughout the ages to come. And I've told you over the past few weeks that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, is central to everything that we do. We have a Christ-centered theology at our church. We even named our church Christ the King. Now, there are those that say, you know, you don't want to give too much emphasis to any one person of the Trinity. You shouldn't give too much emphasis to the Father, too much to the Holy Spirit, or too much to Jesus. We need to worship God in the, in the totality of the Trinity. And that's true. But let me ask you this. If you take your Bible and you just read your Bible, what does the Father and the Holy Spirit, or who did the Father and the Holy Spirit continually hold up to us as being central to our lives? It is Jesus Christ. The Father's own testimony is, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus said when the Spirit comes, He's going to point you to Me. He is central to everything we do. And so, we don't want to minimize in any way the doctrine of the Trinity. And in fact, I don't think we do that in our church. But we do want to make sure that we are emphasizing the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is part of our rich theology that we offer and bring to the world. What does the person and work of Jesus Christ mean to El Paso and to the world? And so we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. And then last week, uh, we talked about our vision. And our vision in our literature is this. We seek to bring uh, the transforming power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of His kingdom to El Paso, the Southwest, and wherever our influence may extend. We want to bring the transforming power of the Gospel to El Paso and the Southwest. And we talked last week a little bit about what is transformation. You can transform. You do not need God or the Holy Spirit or anything to transform if you want to transform. You can go on a diet and lose weight. You can go to the gym and work out and get stronger. You can pick up a good book and you can read and increase your intelligence. You can watch TV and decrease your intelligence. You can do all kinds of things to transform and change. You can, the ladies know you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you put on makeup, you're a different person afterwards. Men, we don't care. We like the way we look. We can do our nails with a pocket knife. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? So, transformation though, gospel transformation is something different. 
And when we talk about gospel transformation, we're talking about reorienting your heart, reorienting our hearts in such a way that the change is down at an elemental level. It's like restructuring your DNA. How many of us would love to be able to get in and and really tinker around with our DNA and get rid of all those bad things and put in all these good things? You know, it's the story, the age-old story of the frog who wants to become a prince. And so there's this desire in every human being to improve, to change, to reform their lives, to be somewhat different. And so last week we started out, and I'm just going to go through this quickly and then we'll get on to the last part. What is involved in gospel transformation? And I gave you three things. I think there's more, but we just don't have time to go into the others. But what is involved in gospel transformation? And I gave you three things. The radical love of regeneration or rebirth, what is called rebirth or new birth. The radical love of gospel change. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Gospel change being the doctrine of sanctification. For those of you that like to read theology, it's what we call sanctification. I'll explain a little bit more about that. And then finally, the radical love of Christ our King. So last week we talked about this radical love of regeneration, rebirth, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. I know that that it's a difficult doctrine. It's something that... uh, We as Reformed Presbyterians, we love it and we have uh, uh, embraced it as part of the core doctrines of our church, but we're in in a striking minority. Not everybody believes in the doctrine of election, and that's okay. You don't have to believe it uh, to be saved. However, you do have to believe it in order to get into our club that we're going to have in heaven. And Jesus is the president of that club. So if you want... <laughs> oh no. The doctrine of, ele- of election is a difficult doctrine. Even our Westminster Confession, which affirms it, also warns us to be careful because it is so difficult. Because it seems to impinge on our free will. It seems to be unfair. Why would God choose one over another? Why would He just select people? What is He doing? Is He picking, I love Him, I love Him not, I love Him, I love Him not, and then He lands on you, lucky you. And that's in the famous words of John Calvin. Lucky you. No, it's not that. God is not arbitrary and He's not capricious in His choice, but He does make a choice. And He makes that choice long before you do. long before you do. God initiates transformation. He begins the process. In fact, the Scripture says He begins it before the foundation of the world. And it wouldn't happen if He did not initiate it. If He didn't actually execute the new birth in your life, you would not be saved. It is nothing less than a rank heresy to say that you and I somehow participate in our new birth. How crazy is that? How insane is that? That a dead man can bring himself to life. Yes? It's impossible. And yet we want to hold so fast. Somehow we want to limit God and make ourselves limitless. 
Now doesn't that sound familiar? Somehow we want to run an end around in football terminology. We want to get around Him and become the one who is sovereign and the one who is making choices rather than Him being sovereign and the one that's making choices. And so this is a hill that for me and for our denomination and for our church, we will die on this hill. That regeneration precedes faith. You don't believe and then you are somehow born again. God regenerates you. You are born again and then you believe. You believe freely. You believe of your own free will and volition. You believe because you want to, not because He's coercing you. Your will, in other words, has truly been set free. Your will was in bondage and now it is set free. And that's all there is, folks, to the doctrine of election. It is as simple as that. And why people kick and fight against it, I'll never understand. It's like, you know, you're in shackles, you're in chains, you're a slave, and somebody comes and frees you, and you just start complaining. It's ludicrous. God frees us, and He frees us in such a way, and so magnificently, that we are the ones who then choose Him. We are the ones that then believe. We are the ones that then fall in love with our our freer, the one who frees us, our Savior, our King. And that's all the more it is. Let me read you a little selection from the Canons of Dort, and then we'll move on. This is a conference they had to resolve all of the controversy, which it's never been resolved and and, uh, never will be, uh, perhaps ever in all of eternity. But this is what they, the statement they made at the uh, Canons of Dort. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, He has, out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of His own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault, from their primitive state of innocence and rectitude, into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom He from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect, the foundation of salvation. Regeneration precedes faith. It's the starting point of your transformation. And it's all God's work, all by Himself. He sets you free so that you can believe and so that you can participate with Him in His great kingdom work. Without that freedom, folks, we have nothing. We continue to be slaves to our sin. The only thing that's left for us then is to enter into a love relationship with our King and follow Him. We begin to follow Him. And in that, you do participate. In fact, you must. If you don't participate, nothing's going to happen. In fact, you'll be a miserable Christian. And some of you, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I'm a miserable Christian. I, my, my Christianity is just wearing me out. It's wearing me down. I don't like being a Christian. I'd rather be anything else. It's just too hard. Well, then you have not taken your, uh, your, your sanctification, your gospel change, is not being affected by God. It's being affected by you. You're the one doing it. 
You're trying to work it out all on your own by your own hard effort and good works. And we want to throw uh, rocks at our, our Catholic brothers and sisters and say, oh, they believe in merit and merit. Protestants are as guilty as any Roman Catholic, any Eastern Orthodox, any Buddhist, any Hindu. Protestants are just as guilty in believing that merit saves you. And I have a list of about four or five questions that I can ask you. I won't do it now because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I can ask you those questions. And by question three, you will be a full-blown Roman Catholic. Because you'll be making excuses. You'll be giving all kinds of buts and excuses for grace. You'll be, you'll be adding something to grace. I have not met anyone yet that doesn't do it. Unless they've been coached uh, by me first. We all do that. In fact, folks, I'll make a confession. I do it. I know this inside and out. I live and breathe this stuff. And I still wake up every day and I wonder if I'm worthy of His love. I wonder if I'm doing enough. And it'll drive you into the ground. And if that's your Christian experience, I beg you, come and talk to one of the, come and talk to one of the elders of your church or to me and let us help you. We've been there. We know what it's like to live under that burden of doing it on your own. But gospel change, gospel transformation, what I believe our world is dying to hear from us and, and in our circle, in, in El Paso and in the west side where God's going to plant us out here in the west side in this beautiful building with neighbors all around us, this is what those people want to hear. They want to know that there's hope. They want to know that there's a God that loves them and, and has entered into time and space for them and as them. That's our vision. Bringing that transformational power. Not just tell people, do better, try harder, work harder, be better, be more moral. As important as all that is. But find Jesus Christ and in Him you find true freedom. And so let's look very quickly at the radical love of gospel change. What we call in theology, sanctification. We believe in our doctrine of our church, the the doctrines of our church, that holiness, listen carefully, holiness, this may make some of you mad, and I don't care. I've had so many people get mad at me I don't care anymore. Holiness is not about your behavior. Did you hear me? It is not about your behavior. Holiness is about your identity, who you are. God called you to be His holy people. He separates you to Himself. In other words, He says now, we're going we're gonna to baptize the baby, the Ensley baby in a few weeks. And I'm going to take that baby and in a sacred moment, in a ritual sacred moment, separate, cut that child's life off from the sinful past and separate that child to its sanctified and holy future. Just like they did in the Old Testament with the rite of circumcision. Only it's not going to be any blood. Nobody will have to close their eyes. It'll be a holy moment where God separates that child and says, this child is mine. And He did it to every one of you 
whether you were baptized as an infant or an adult, He is saying, you're mine. And now, at this moment, you are holy. You are my holy people. Then He says, that's chapter 19 of Exodus, by the way. Okay? If you want to check it, go read it after church. Chapter 19 of Exodus. You're my holy people. I saved you. I brought you out of slavery. You're mine. On eagle's wings, I carried you out from Egypt. Then He gives them chapter 20. Then He gives them the Ten Commandments. 19 of Exodus precedes chapter 20 of Exodus. First He tells them who they are. Then He tells them, now because you're this, do this. This is what you do. Not to become this, but because you're this. And folks, if you don't get that down into your bones, if it's not flowing through your veins and your bloodstream, of your Christian life, Christianity is going to be miserable to you. It'll be odious. It'll be a burden. But when you realize that He has elected you and selected you for reasons only known to Himself, so that you could then follow Him. Because why? Because you love Him. He freed you from slavery. Wouldn't you do anything for this king? Wouldn't you give up anything? Wouldn't you press in hard for anything? Would it not change your behavior? Yes? Of course. And I think, now this is my opinion, and I want to be very careful. I don't like to give my opinion, but I'm going to give you just this little opinion. I think the reason that many of us struggle and say, well, I'm just failing, I'm failing, I'm failing, is because we are not resorting to that. We are trying to do it on our own. We have not embraced the power of God realizing that we are holy people separated to God. And that our behavior is going to change. It may take your whole life. In fact, I promise you, it's going to take your whole life. And you have to be patient Patient with those around you who are in process. You know, I would, I would hate to think that one of you could get in a time capsule and go back with a camera and take a picture of me uh, 20 years ago. Because you would have said, oh, and bring that picture back into this time in the, fu- in the future and say, look at what Chuck was doing 20 years ago. You would have said, oh my God, he can't possibly be a Christian. God, do you want anybody to judge you on the basis of a snapshot of your life? Do you? Don't you, want, don't you want people to know the whole story? Don't you want them to know the video of your life? Yes, I was blind, but now I see. Yes, I was lost, but now I'm found. Yes, I was this, but now I'm this. Like I told you last week, Augustine said to his mistress as she walked by and she said, it's me, Augustine. And he said, yeah, but it's not me. It was no longer him. And that's what we're talking about. Paul tells the Colossians, look at verse 5. Put to death. Put to death. And then he gives this long list. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire. Covet, and then he goes on and adds more and more to it. Lie, don't lie to each other. He's saying take those things And put them to death. In other words, the way you're to deal with them is with extreme prejudice. You don't toy around with them. You don't play brinkmanship with them. You don't get out as close. Let's see how close I can get and not fall off the cliff. You don't do any of that. You put it to death. 
It's what Jesus was talking about when He said, if your eye is offending, you pluck it out. If your hand's offending, you cut it off. He wasn't talking about the literal uh, uh, mutilation of your body. He was talking about the extremities to which we must go in order to combat the evils that are around us. And if you know that Christ is with you, if you know that He's by your side, then those things do not look like Mount Everest to you. But if you're going to face them on your own, it's impossible, yes? I've never been able to conquer one single thing by myself. A chocolate chip cookie can undo me. I've told you. And you all know that's true. We can have the, the, the slightest thing can trip us up. But once Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit by the love of God our Father comes into your life, you can begin to see change. True change. Sometimes it's incremental. You barely even notice it. It's like the, 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 the clock. You know, the clock, you can see the second hand moving, but you can't see the other hands moving. Or the orbit of the earth. You, can't, you really can't see it happening. You can't see you know, plants grow. And very often it's that way with us. We can't see what's happening. But transformation will happen. He promises this. He says then in verse 12 and, and going on forward to verse 17, He says, Now put to death these things, but now clothe yourself with these things. Take these things and start to put them on clothing yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving, love, peace, thankfulness. Those are things that each and every one of us should see growing in our lives. Not all at once, not in great big steps or measures. Maybe again, incrementally, but little by little, are you seeing those changes in your life? putting to death, clothing yourself. You know, it's been said by I don't know how many people, He loves us enough or so much that He won't leave us as we are. Have you heard that before? I don't know. If you've been in church five minutes, you hear that. It's one of those famous sayings. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. So He has promised that He will affect these change. He who began a good work. This is, I don't know how many people, this is their life verse. Do you all like life verses? No, I don't either. I think they stink. So don't give me your life verse. However, if you're going to have one, this is a good one to have. Actually, I do, I, I like, I, I do like life verses, but here's, here's a good one. Listen. He who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the time of Christ. You see, He has promised that He will never leave you or forsake you. And that doesn't mean that He's just going to stand there by your side and do nothing. What that means is, He's never going to leave you alone. Now, I'll, I'll make another confession. There have been I, I can't count the times I have told God, and I'm ashamed to say it, but I've said this. I want you to leave me alone. Now, I know none of you would ever say anything like that because you're way too good. You're way too find a, a group of people, you would never tell God to leave you alone, would you? The silence is deafening in here. I've told Him, leave me alone. I don't want, I don't want anymore. You're bothering me. You're driving me crazy. You're afflicting me. 
you're, uh, you're bugging me, you're b- stirring up my conscience, I would rather, I like what I'm doing right now, I would like you to leave me alone for a minute. You know, I'm enjoying the, this, this moment of anger that I have towards my wife is delicious. I don't want to give it up for anything. Just give me a few minutes to just bathe in it, please. Or, you know, somebody does you wrong and you say, oh, boy, I'm, just, I'm the victim, poor me, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. And you just get into your pity party and it just, doesn't it feel good? It's like a warm bath. It's like a sauna. Of course, if you stay in there too long, you'll die. We love those things. And I've told God, leave me alone, leave me alone. And He just, what does He do? In your experience, what does He do? You know what He does to me? He gets more in my business. More in my face. More embrace. Big smile on His face. Just grab you, hug and loving on you. You know, and he says, you know, in the meantime, I'm going to give you this dread disease for a while so that you'll start listening. Do you see what he does? He loves us. And he will never leave you alone. Never. He will go after you and pursue you like the proverbial hound of heaven. But we must cooperate with him in our sanctification. Transformation requires us to participate, to give in to the great King. Beloved, Paul said this in Philippians 2, another good life verse. If you like life verses, this is a good one. Beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like he's saying do it all on your own. But listen to to the rest. For it is God who works in you both to will and do His good pleasure. You see, it's a cooperation. While our regeneration is all God, our sanctification, our gospel change is a cooperative effort. It's us going to God in humility and saying, I'm here, do with me as you will. And I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Now why? Well, it's because of Christ uh, our King. You know, when we, when, when we start meeting new people, and we're sure to meet new people in this neighborhood we're going to, this is what we want to promise them, folks. It's this kind of a God. This kind of a religion. One in which you can tell them Jesus Christ came for you, but He also came as you to die in your place. Christ our King. Look, finally look at these Verses, uh, let me just run them off to you real quick and you can look at them later. Verse 1, these are descriptors how Paul chose, under the inspiration of Holy Spirit, how Paul chose to describe Jesus. Listen carefully, this is, will blow your mind. He is seated at the right hand of God. Our life, verse 3, is hidden with Christ In God. Do you see the encapsulation of your life? In Christ. In God. Look at verse 4. Christ is our life. Our glory. Verse 11. Christ is all in all. Verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, forgive others. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse 17, do everything 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all descriptors, folks, of a great king. A king. Do everything in the name of the king. Nobody in the ancient world would have presumed to to go out into the world and operate in their own name. They would always have been the agent unless they were some great personage. But most people would have gone and they would have operated in the name of whoever they belonged to. Whoever was their king or their sovereign. They would have acted in His name. And so Paul is using these descriptors to describe a great king. And what he's saying is, you are... You, you must give your fidelity, your love, and your loyalty to this great King. And we all know that. We know that we're to love Him. And so we start doing these things in our mind. Do I really love Him? How could I love Him? I know, I owe Him my love. He's done so much for me, I owe Him. And if you get into this, what John Piper calls a debtor's ethic, where you believe, you know, I owe God everything, therefore I'm going to give Him everything, then you're in a debtor's ethic and you no longer have a love relationship. You just owe. And so you're like one of the seven dwarves. Some of you are getting that, right? I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. That's the kind of theology that we fall into. I owe Him, and we even have it in our hymns. And I know, all to Jesus, all to Him I owe. I know what we mean when we say that, but it's very subtle that we begin to exchange a love relationship with God for a worker and an employer. Do you get that? I work for Him, He gives me wages. What does that sound like? Yes, we do owe Him everything. We owe Him the very breath in our lungs. But if you stay there, then you're just an employee and you have an employer and I owe, I owe. It's off to work, I go. And it's a transaction, not a love relationship. On the other hand, if you look into the eyes of the King, the King who is not saying you owe me, but the king that says, I will give you my life. Not just some of my life. I give you all my life. I won't give it to you just for a while. I give it to you forever. And I don't want you to come work for me. I want you to come live with me. And I don't want you to be my employee. I want you to be my bride I want you to sleep in this mansion, this room, specially prepared for you because you are the most beautiful thing in all creation to me. And to show you your value, I will exchange me for you. I will give me for you. There's not another religion in the world, folks, that says that. All the gods, all the cosmic forces, all the powers in the universe of other religions all say, you for me. 
You give to me. You work for me. You do for me. You die for me. Only Christianity says, I will die for you. This is the great King. The love of God compels us, I told you last week. It controls us. And when you see that, it will transform you. And it will transform El Paso if we'll, if we'll participate with Him in it. And it will transform the west side of El Paso. Wherever we go, wherever we live, what we say in the journey to our journey guys, where we live, work, and play, take that with you. Will you trust Him? Will you do it? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thanks uh, for this day. And we are so very grateful that You have given Your Son for us uh, to love us this way, a way that we can't even begin to repay. And to say I'll pay You back is somehow it sounds, it's crass to even think in those terms. But I will go where You send me. I will do what You tell me. And I will lay the sword of my life at Your feet. My great King, command us Send us into the harvest fields with joy and gladness because You came into that field to die for us. Help us, we pray. Save us. And have mercy on us, our God. Amen.